All right, everybody, welcome back to episode three of Jaws versus Jurassic Park. This is going to be the capper. This is where we're going to give our final judgment on these two great films. I'm super excited to talk about Quint's speech and the composer for both of these movies, who is an icon. But I am not quite as excited as I am about what's coming up next week, which is Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction versus ACDC Back in Black in the first one that we tackle is Appetite for Destruction and it's going to get released on the 33rd anniversary of the release of the album. How awesome is that? So you guys be sure and whatever app you're using right now, be sure and subscribe or follow or do whatever you need to do to automatically download so that you don't miss that episode next week. And without further ado... Hello everybody and welcome to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast, discussing and debating the iconic and the forgotten of 80s and 90s pop culture with your co-hosts, James D. Graves and Jason Colvin. Welcome back, everybody, to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. We are on part three of our Jaws versus Jurassic Park episode. We are going to dive right in. Forgive the pun there. (laughs) (laughs) So both of the movies start off with a death scene, right? In Jaws, you have Chrissy being attacked by an unseen monster underneath the water and and that sets the impetus for the whole first portion act one of the movie if you will same thing happens in jurassic park we start off with a death scene despite you know (laughs) amazing scientific abilities for some reason they can't get a cage that just locks in place and so guy (laughs) falls in and you have the Muldoon character who's doing everything he can shoot her close upon his teeth Closer. Closer. <laughs> I want his teeth. I can't I want to see the cavity. <laughs> no, no, the fillings. Get close to the fillings. <laughs> Here's the other thing about that scene that drives me insane. Okay. Yeah. Whatever they're shooting the Velociraptor with is not working. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. The little zappers, the bug zappers, pull out the yeah. shotguns, okay? Yeah. Shoot her with a bazooka. So both of those set the story going for the first act of the movie. Um, So with Jaws, you get this idea that uh, there's a shark out there. Maybe we should shut things down. And then you begin the power struggle to determine whether the beach gets shut down or whether it doesn't get shut down. If we switch over to Jurassic Park, the death is the impetus behind the lawyer going to the park and putting together the team of people to establish whether this park is really safe or not. You have the very strange scene where there's a kid out on an archaeological dig that gets threatened by Dr. Grant. (laughs) That's not very Uh, scary. Like a six foot turkey. Uh, You know, these are, these are incredibly well done movies, but there are definitely parts that I was just like, why did we choose to do it this way? Yeah. Why is there a kid out there in the middle of this? And why is he like a smart alecky little snot nosed brat kid of all things? 
Yeah, somebody's dad needs to whoop him for talking back to Dr. Grant. Is And they're all around the computer. Like I mean, they're hovering. They're hovering over the computer where we establish this idea that Dr. Grant doesn't like computers. He and the machines don't get along, right? Right. And so it's that whole man versus technology thing. And then this kid who three feet back from the entire crowd is able to look at the screen and go, that's not scary. <laughs> <laughs> So the the impetus is set in place so that these experts are called in to establish whether the park is safe or not. And of course, the lawyer whose job it is to come in and really scrutinize this for the investors, once he sees the dinosaurs with everybody else, he becomes full on, let's forget about safety. We're going to make millions and millions of dollars, right. which is, of course, what this is the big issue in this movie. It's all about money versus how safe. Visit. We're going to make a fortune with this place. And then, of course, the lawyer, the blood-sucking lawyer, who's the only one that's agreeing with John Hammond, is also the first one to die. <laughs> and appropriately <laughs> on so. The toilet. And sitting on top of a toilet. On too. the toilet. Uh, yeah. Thanks to <laughs> Jeff Goldblum's character, who wouldn't stay in the car. Well, no, no, no. He leaves the T-Rex to the toilet. Oh, yeah, he does. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you're breaks absolutely his leg. 100% anyway. right. <laughs> so let me ask you this. What Follow was me your, to the toilet. Yes. What was your thought? Whenever you, the scene didn't go the way that originally, it wasn't written that way. It was Jeff Goldblum's suggestion that he also grab a torch and try to distract the T-Rex. And so you have this great moment where Dr. Grant distracts the T-Rex from the kids. He throws the flare into the park. The dinosaur looks and makes a motion to follow the flare. Right, right. Only to be distracted again by another flare. Ian Malcolm waving another flare, who then brings him back, which, I mean, you see the look on Dr. Grant's face, and it's absolutely appropriate it's like everybody he's he is the audience at that point like what the f are you doing supposedly to heroically get the kids you know but he brings the t-rex right back to him goes off to the toilet gets the lawyer killed and breaks his leg in the process not very heroic in my opinion but it was better than the runaway uh, <laughs> that he was originally gonna do so we've talked before how chief brody was every man, right? He's supposed to be the audience. Right. So one of the big ideas with Jaws, and I mentioned this in our last episode, is this idea of the power struggle, right? It's the pissing contest. And it's almost exclusively man and nature and man and man that's involved here. We got Brody versus the mayor, and he's the new guy. And here's a big idea that kind of gets lost in the movie, but it's there, is this idea of an islander and a non-islander. Like, you know, the kid at the beginning, he talks about, you know, are you, you know, from the island? And he's like, oh, I live this other place. He says, but I was born here, which makes him an islander. And then later on, the woman is, you know, Brody's wife is like, well, when am I an islander? And she's like, Ellen, you'll never be an islander. You weren't born here. You'll never, it doesn't matter how long you're here. Right. So it's this insider versus outsider thing that goes along with the power struggle that's going on between Brody and the mayor, Right. Right. And then you have, of course, you know, the probably the biggest pissing contest is between Quint and Hooper, right? Yes, yes, for sure. And but before you even get there, even the mayor and Hooper have their little power struggle as well. You know, you'd like to prove that, wouldn't you? Get your name in one of those National Geographic magazines or whatever it is he says. Right. I'm not talking yeah. to a man who's lining up to be a hot lunch. <laughs> 
right. <laughs> right. You heard him slow ahead. And then you also have this kind of weird dynamic when they're all on the boat together of Quentin Hooper, who even though they're warring with each other, they have a power struggle with Brody. They're not letting Brody do anything. I mean, we'll get the freaking chief of police on the boat and he's like subservient to everything that they're saying. You know, they right. gets yelled at for messing with the tanks and then Shaw is like, it's okay, you just ask me, like a condescending little... It's this neat power dynamic and they do a great job both in the script writing and the acting of, without overtly saying it, establishing that power contest, right? Yep. Yep. So back to my original idea, Brody, we see him and we know from the beginning that he's a protector, right? He's, t- he's talking to the kids, don't swing on the swing, it's, it's broken, right? And he's willing to admit that he's wrong when he's made mistakes, specifically not closing the beaches and letting Alex die is wrong and it's not your fault. Yes, it was. She, she's wrong, that's what he said. She's wrong. No, she's not. And so you see this character development of Brody going through this process, you know, and he has to, he's already kind of left his his known spot and come into this little island that he's not familiar with. And then he really has to go into the unknown of the water because we learn at the beginning, he hates the water. I don't know why he moved to be the chief of police of an island town when he hates the water, but... Yeah, and we don't really get a sense of why he hates the water, do we? I don't think that's ever really mentioned. No. Uh-uh. Hooper tells his story, and then in a little bit, we can talk about Quint and his story. So we understand why they don't. But the most we get is, you know, they, they call it that fear. What's it called? And he goes, drowning. <laughs> <laughs> right. Drowning, not so good. <laughs> So Brody goes through this entire, you know, we get to the second death and then he has to go through this entire process where he moves from being the guy that everybody's picking on or condescending to and who he can't have a voice for to he's the last guy left. And where is he? He's in the middle of the water on a sinking ship. He is facing his biggest fear. We've talked about it with Indiana Jones. We talked about it with Marty McFly. Chief Brody is stuck in his biggest fear And what is that? He's in the water sinking, but he has grown. We watch Chief Brody grow up and become a man so that he is able to save everyone else, even, and he thinks, probably sacrificing his own life so that everyone else can be saved. Yeah, it's good. When they were filming these types of scenes out at sea, Spielberg really wanted to make sure you could not ever see land. Because he wanted them to be isolated. Mm -hmm. And there was this thought process that if you could see land, then if they got in trouble, they just take the boat back. We'll get them tomorrow. So I wanted them to feel isolated. And I thought it was funny. This is, of course, before digital removing anything, right? So they would be out at sea and there would be a sailboat that would come into like the right edge of the frame. And they had to wait and wait and wait for that sailboat to completely cross across all the way from the right side to the left side. And then they had to pray that there was not another sailboat on the right side of the screen. Right. I mean, this was all because Steven Spielberg was like, we have to shoot this on the real ocean, right? Right. That's right. Had they been on a lake, had they been in the back lot, none of this would have been a problem. But we also, if you look at this movie, this movie has a reality that I will go ahead and say our other movie even though they were filming in an actual place, it doesn't seem to have to me. Like the other movie has a cartoon quality about it. I don't know what to, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but there is a reality that I get with Jaws that is missing in Jurassic Park. What do you think? 
I agree with you that the elements of Jaws are just as life-threatening as the shark, whereas the jungle, you know, Dr. Grant and the kids, they go to sleep in the jungle. They're right. sleeping with giant dino cows, you know what I mean? So <laughs> right. it's just not as threatening as deep ocean. To that, to Jurassic Park, our main character, of course, is Dr. Grant. And we learn from the beginning, not only does he scare the crap out of the little kid by basically threatening to disembowel him, <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want kids, right? They smell. Yeah, and they're loud. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> But he doesn't like kids. The relationship that he has with Sattler is so, so subtle. I don't know that I even noticed that they were actually romantically involved for the first several times I watched it. I mean, what do they hug? Maybe half a second in the movie. There's no they, romance. I don't, I don't think I there don't really know. is. I think we're supposed to believe that there is, but I don't see any kind of chemistry romantically between them at all, really. No. Uh -uh. Do they kiss? No. No. Nope. Do they hug? Do they hold hands? I kind of think that maybe Ian Malcolm touches her more than Dr. Grant does. <laughs> I think you're so, right. So Dr. Grant doesn't like children but then is thrown into this situation again where he has to protect. It's, and, and it's one of my favorite parts in the movie when Lex screams, he left us, he left us. And he says, yes, but I'm not going to. At that moment, he becomes responsible for the lives of others. And so he starts as, with, he starts as this guy who is interested only in dead old things and doesn't want to be involved with kids and ends up with a guy who hates the dinosaurs and loves the kids. He grows to be their protector over the course of the movie. Yeah, I think that's interesting. One of the things that I did want to talk about is, I mean, you talk about this tension between Quint and Hooper, back to Jaws. Yeah. There was a tension between Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfus. Oh, yeah. And it's rather famous. You know, Shaw had been acting for much of his life at that point. He's, he's in his late 40s. He started acting when he was in his early 20s. And so he's been around a while. Now, Richard Dreyfus had been in a few small things, but it hadn't been very many years before that, that he had really gotten his first major film experiences. He had a couple, he had like two lines in The Graduate, and then he gets, he gets this part in American Graffiti, right? Yeah. Yep. And that one's a decent, that's a decent supporting role for him. And then he gets his first starring role that we talked about last episode in the Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz. Right. And so he is, he's a young guy. I mean, he's a young and relatively speaking, inexperienced guy. And so Robert Shaw would have this, this power dynamic with, with him that he said, you know, he was the nicest guy in the world to me when we weren't on set. And then once we got on set, it became this condescending, make fun of him, you know, do whatever you can to goad him for the entire production. And I have heard this, that during the production of this movie, you know, they're on a beach, right? And so tourists come in. And there, a lot of them are young girls in bathing suits. And the, the crew was pretty familiar. But everybody said that Richard Dreyfus was the man right. with regard to the young ladies who might be taking their vacation in Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. Movie crews in general, when they come to your town, are pretty popular guys. And Richard Dreyfus and uh, some of his buddies tried to enjoy as much of the benefits of being a movie star as they possibly could. Right. So there may have 
he obviously, Richard Dreyfus probably has a little bit of confidence as he's coming in, and Robert Shaw is trying to put that in place. Yep. On the flip side of that, Robert Shaw has a drinking problem. For sure. Absolutely, he does. Now, there are a certain contingent of British actors who are just known for being heavy drinkers. We talked about Oliver Reed when we had our Gladiator episode and how he hung with Peter O'Toole and some of those guys. And it sounds like Robert Shaw probably would have fit in very well with those folks. Yep, for sure. Um, and he was he he was willing to admit it. Apparently, um, I've heard a couple of different versions of this story, and one version goes: uh, Robert Shaw was you know trying to move along the boat and had to use two hands to do something, but he had a drink in one hand, and he says to Ro- to Richard Dreyfus, uh, "Can you help me out with this?" And Richard Dreyfus says, "You want me to help you out with it?" <laughs> He says, yeah. And he hands him the glass and Richard Dreyfuss immediately just chunks it into the ocean. (laughs) And then the other version was, I've got a drinking problem. Can anybody help me? And it's at that point that Richard Dreyfuss takes his drink and throws it into the ocean. Either way, it's funny. It's a funny response to the heckling that he's been getting from this uh, actor all the while that they're on stage. It was funny, but the entire crew was like, "Uh uh-oh, we might have a blow up right here. Yeah, I mean, and, and I, we don't want to give Shaw too much credit. Credit. I mean, he was he was like, "You're such a pansy. I bet you won't even climb climb to the top of the mast on the <laughs> ship." Right. And and he keeps offering him more and more money to do it. And finally, Spielberg is like, "You're not allowed. I am saying, as the director of this movie, you are forbidden to climb to the top of that mast because it looked like Dreyfus was about to go do it." Right. Right. And it's the same power struggle that you see going on on film. All right. Well, let's talk about the the scene that they discussed the Indianapolis. I thought this was brilliant. So that part was not in the book at all. It was Howard Sackler's idea. He said, hey, you should have him have been on the USS Indianapolis. And Spielberg didn't know what it was. I mean, I didn't know what it was until I saw the movie. It's not... It, it, you know, now that this movie now being 45 years old, it's something that everybody knows. But even back in 1975, it wasn't common knowledge. You didn't know about the event unless you were related to somebody or you were somebody that was on that ship, right? Right, right. They needed something for the character to hate sharks. Why does he hate sharks so much? Why is he dead set on getting this shark? Right. And the Indianapolis gives us the reason. Right. And so Howard Sackler had come up with the idea and then I mentioned before, the, uh, John Milius had been involved with the script and, and was a good friend of uh, Steven Spielberg. He was one of the guys there with Spielberg and Lucas when they came in and broke the shark. <laughs> right. And he, he took it upon himself to develop that particular monologue, that scene. And he wrote a 10-page monologue for this, which is too much. I mean, that's you gotta you got to figure there's approximately one minute for each page. Right. Somebody talking for 10 solid minutes is too much. And so they had the scene. They couldn't figure out exactly how how to whittle it down. And it was Robert Shaw who said, can I take a stab at it? Can I take, can, will you give it to me and let me work on it a little bit? And he took it home and he worked on it or he took it back and he worked on it overnight and came back with roughly a five-page script and... Spielberg looked at it and said, this is perfect. 
Yes, that's exactly right. And then on the day of filming, Robert Shaw said, hey, before I do this, I think I'm going to have a few drinks. And Spielberg is like, mm, all right, you know, method actor. Sure, go for it. All right. And he got hammered. He got hammered. <laughs> he got <laughs> he got hammerheaded, and I mean, he was he was sloshed, and he couldn't do it. The next day, he came back and said, "How bad did I embarrass myself?" Spielberg said, "Well, I don't really know if we can use much of that. Well, I'd like another shot at it. Can I have another shot?" And then he came back, and then he nailed it. He didn't just nail it; he changed the entire perception of the movie in one take. He made everyone in the crew, Steven Spielberg, everyone in the cast, suddenly go, this is a movie that might be a success. Yep. Because up until that point, they had dealt with the shark, they had dealt with the script problems, they had dealt with the problems of filming in the ocean, and Steven Spielberg thought he was going to get fired every single day. He almost went and quit the production, and then in a moment, everyone's perception changed. Yep, that's exactly right. You know, you talk about Steven Spielberg thinking every day he was going to be fired. He used to sleep with celery under his pillow because it was considered good luck. But you're exactly right. That scene gave them that sort of emotional connection between the characters where they thought, okay, this is more than just a silly shark movie. We, we got something here. Yeah, and it, it's still watching it. Every time that I see that scene, I am entranced. I know exactly what he's going to say. I can almost quote it for you word for word. And I, I just sit there and am, and am totally engrossed in it. And it's, at the, it's, it's just after that moment that the shark comes back. The scars that they're showing, yeah, like the scar <laughs> scene, yeah, it's funny. And I think one of them is an actual scar Richard Dreyfuss shows. So, yeah, so they're comparing scars. And it's, it is wonderful because this is the way it is with men, right? You know, you, you fight and then you become best friends, right? You antagonize and antagonize. It's like being on a sports team, right? It's yep. you, you are constantly giving the other guy crap. You're trash talking. And then something happens that brings you guys together. And suddenly you're the best of friends, right? Yes, And so that's what happens when they start talking about the scars. If somebody points out a scar, what happened to you? What happened to me? You know, and, and they're showing scars of where they were attacked by eels or attacked by sharks. And suddenly Quint and Hooper have found their common ground. And Brody has this wonderful little moment where he lifts up his shirt and looks at an appendix scar <laughs> to try to decide whether he should mention it or not and then decides not to mention it and that scar as it turns out is actually uh, Roy Scheider actually had an appendectomy it was a real scar wait 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 let me guess mother <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so with both of these movies, you have this idea of man versus nature, intellect versus ignorance, right? Okay, so, you know, the, the intellect for Jaws is obviously the Hooper and Quint and a little bit of Brody, and then the intellect for Jurassic Park is all of the archaeologists and Dr. Ian Malcolm, and then you have what you believe to be the ignorant animals, right? The ignorant shark or the ignorant dinosaurs. But what makes these things truly scary is they don't seem to be that ignorant. For sure. That's right. Right. 
So this it turns from intellect versus ignorance to intellect versus something almost supernatural because not only is this thing gigantic and powerful and deadly, it also appears that it's smart. That's right. The scene where the shark goes underneath the boat, really he's taken by surprise. Right. And you as the audience, you're thinking, man, this guy's in charge and he knows exactly what's going on until now and now he's like whoa this right is, and, something and that's up. when yeah that's when Pen, that's when quint and hooper's power struggle suddenly takes a turn right because with them you had hooper's intellect versus quint's know-how and experience and the working class kind of idea and he quint has done, done nothing but belittle hooper's fancy gadgets and stuff until the point that he realizes that the shark is smart too. And and it's at that point that he says, what exactly can you do with these things of yours? Yeah, that's really cool. Hey, there is something about that right around that moment that I want to mention. There is a scene where Chief Brody is loading his revolver and it's uh, sort of set at dusk and you see a massive shooting star. Did you notice this when you watched the movie? Every time. That is not an optical effect. They just happen to catch that shooting star at that moment, and it looks super cool. Dumb luck <laughs> to find the movie, right? They got so many dumb luck <laughs> shots. It's incredible. <laughs> so we have the Leviathan versus man in both scenarios, which goes to the idea of super match, supernatural power versus mankind. You've got mythic, unemotional almost demonic and unbeatable with intellect with but both with intellect shark and dinosaurs and i love i love ian malcolm's lines and all of this he is the guy who's trying to he's he's mocking but he is absolutely right in everything that he says right life will not be contained life finds a way He says, what you call call discovery, I call the rape of the natural world. He realizes that they are just hurtling headlong into this idea without taking the time to think about it. You're so so preoccupied with whether they could, they never stop to think of whether they should. He actually even says the line, boy, do I hate being right all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, D, I've got a couple of little tidbits that I want to throw at you. I, I think you're going to be amazed. I really will be surprised if you heard this stuff, all right? Okay, so the shark in Jaws doesn't show up until one hour and two minutes into the film, okay? Yes. In Jurassic Park, the full view of the adult Velociraptor doesn't show up until one forty-three into the movie. Almost two hours into the movie, you don't get the full view of the raptor. Here is my tidbit, Okay. You know the scene where the uh, the local fishermen put like a brisket on a hook and they throw it and they're, they're sitting on that rickety old dock that's just barely hanging on by three nails. Sure enough, boom, shark hits it. The chain starts to go and they're like, whoa, look at that, Charlie. And the, the dock falls apart and he drags it out to sea. That's a really tense scene, right? Drags right. that guy on the dock out to the, to, you know, 100 yards offshore And the doc turns around, starts to come back, and the guy's going, swim, Charlie, swim. Yeah. It's the first first point that you suddenly go, this shark is not just a mindless man-eater. Yep. He's coming back. 
Yep. He's turned, he turned around. around. Yeah. He's going to make Charlie pay for this decision. But there was a young filmmaker on set that day who was just stopping by to see how things were going. And they're like, all right, you, hey, come over here, grab a hammer and nails and help us put together this rickety old dock. Do you know who that filmmaker was? No, Jason, I don't know who that is. Can you tell me? <laughs> <laughs> the young filmmaker on set that day that built that crappy little dock, none other than John Landis, director of Coming to America, Trading Places, American Werewolf in London, Animal House. That's awesome. Good. Cool, huh? That is that's a great tidbit. We're going to put that one on the trivia card. Okay. Uh, a couple little tidbits also for you that I thought were interesting. The voice on the radio on Quint's boat when Mrs. Brody tries to contact her husband is actually Steven Spielberg's. Yep. Peter Benchley has a cameo as a news reporter on the beaches. Yes. Which is kind of cool. Okay. Here's another tidbit for you. Quint's boat is called the Orca. In yes. real life, the Orca whale, which we, we typically call the killer whale, Yes. Is the only known predator of the great white shark. Yep. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah. And then finally, I thought this was interesting. Nobody else may find it interesting, but the sound <laughs> editor, the sound editor who had to find uh, sound effects for, for everything in the movie, uh-huh. when the shark comes out of the water and onto Quint's boat, yes. the sound effect that he used right there is a fizzy bottle of Coke poured out on the concrete. It goes. That's random. He jumps out and it's like. So. Ah. Fizzy Coke. That'd be a fun job to have sound editor to just go. This is a cool sound. Let's see what I can put this with. I would love to do Foley artist. You're going to need a bigger boat. And so then, of course, once they finished filming, and we talked about how they did the editing process, and at Verna Field's pool, they poured milk in the water so that they could shoot that scare scene. And I, I just to touch on Verna Fields real quick, she was somebody who had done like TV editing and wasn't particularly big in Hollywood, but you know, knew her way around. She started teaching at USC. And a couple of people that happened to be in her classes were George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Never heard of them. Who are they? <laughs> <laughs> and so she she had such a great mind that really hadn't been appreciated at that point. But when George Lucas was like, need, need, I need an editor, I'm going to go call Verna. She was smart as a whip. I like Verna. Yep. And so she gets involved there. She gets involved with Steven Spielberg because uh, she actually worked with him, I think, on Sugarland Express as well. When she was teaching, she actually hired this is this is crazy she hired george lucas before he hired her when he was still just in at usc she hired him and also hired a lady named marcia griffin who ended up being his future wife and is also an editor and who you know because you were the one that sent me the video on how Star Wars was saved by the editing. It was because of Marsha Griffin that Star Wars probably was the success that it was instead of a dismal failure. It's absolutely correct. Yeah, that video is really cool. If you haven't seen it, you need to check it out. But yeah, Marsha Lucas cut Star Wars to get rid of all the confusing crap and streamlined it to the, to the movie that we know and love today. Yeah, on first showing, everybody hated it. <laughs> Brian DePaul was like, what is all this crap? I don't understand any of it. 
Yeah, and so it was Marsha Griffin that came in and said it, who had been introduced to George Lucas by Verna Fields. Verna Fields then gets called by Steven Spielberg to edit Sugarland Express, and they start to call her the Mother Cutter. Nice, nice. Yes, right. And just just to talk about her amazing ability, she developed this, she pioneered a technique called wipe by cut, where the cut takes place as like a figure crosses between the camera and the character, which, so you're at a distant shot, somebody walks in front of the camera and suddenly you're at a close-up shot because you do the cut right as the person crosses in front of the camera. And you, so you are having what would normally be called a jump cut where you've got a, a staggering thing into something that you don't even notice that it happens because of this wipe by cut type of procedure that Verna Fields pioneered. After after editing those movies and Jaws, she was nominated for the Oscar and she won. She goes on to be a Hollywood executive at that point. She moves from the lady editing TV shows to the lady who's now ordering people around at major Hollywood studios. And then once they're done with the editing process, the last thing left to do, put in the soundtrack. Before we do that, I just want to mention one thing. Yeah. On Jaws, they were scheduled for 55 days of shooting, right? May 1st to June 28th, 1974. They actually finished in 159 days. That's three times what they were scheduled for. This is late September when they wrapped. Flash forward to 1993. Principal photography was wrapped on November 12th, 1992. That's 12 days ahead of schedule and on budget. Spielberg learned a great deal from Jaws, and he applied that to later movies. Okay, so on to soundtrack. In both of these movies, the composer is the same. You may have heard of this guy. His name is John Williams. The soundtrack for my youth is John Williams' music. You cannot have watched movies in the 80s and not heard a soundtrack by John Williams. It's the greatest of the soundtrack. Like if you put soundtrack greatest hits of the 80s, it's all John Williams. Absolutely it is. Yeah. And if you, I don't care who you are, you've been living in a forest the entire time for the past 40 years. You've heard the Star Wars theme. Yeah. It, it, anybody, if I come up to you, it's like it's like the whoosh on bad. If I come, to you, come up to you and I go, Da-dum. you know exactly what I'm going to do, right? That's two notes. Two notes that he made into something amazing. I'll tell you the story of John Williams, okay? Yeah, do it. So John was born to John, and so most people call John Williams Johnny because that was his name growing up. His dad was also a music guy who worked in music for films. They ended up moving out to L.A. where he went to high school with his future wife. They didn't actually date while they were in high school, but Barbara Ruick met her there. She went on to become an actress and was in several movies and films and TV shows in the 50s and was a singer as well, had a musical background. And there's this really cool, here's here's my interesting tie-in for this particular episode, right? So I saw this picture of Barbara Ruick dancing with Bob Fosse and a couple of other folks, uh, Debbie Reynolds and somebody else, on the affairs of Dobie Gillis. Bob Fosse went on to direct a semi-autobiographical picture about himself called All That Jazz, which starred... Roy Scheider. Very good. Yes. See how it all ties in, right? 
And Debbie so, Reynolds is mother of Princess Leia. Very good. Very good. All ties in. Scored by Johnny Williams. Okay, right. keep going. <laughs> <laughs> and so John Williams uh, gets drafted. He does his military service as a musician, um, does pretty well, ends up he themes his first like a promotional video for the Navy while he's in the Navy. And then he comes back and has to decide, do I want to go to Juilliard or do I want to go arrange and compose music? He is pianist. He plays several instruments, but he is best at piano. And he decides, okay, I'm going to go to Juilliard. So he goes to Juilliard to become a concert pianist. And after a while there, he starts to look at all of the other pianists who are there and he's like, um, I'm not as good as these guys. This is not, uh, this is maybe not what I should do. And that, it's crazy. At that moment, he changes movie history because he decides I'll go back and I'll start arranging and composing. And that's what he does. He goes back to LA and he, before Jaws, he composes dozens of movies and hundreds of uh, TV show episodes. And so he's he's getting his 10,000 hours in. And through that process, he decides to start conducting because he doesn't want to leave it to lesser conductors to get the, the conducting right as well. And one of the movies that he happens to write the score for is a movie called The Reavers, starring Steve McQueen. And I listened to the soundtrack and it's it's very it starts off very folky like if you listen to the theme it's got this kind of folky guitar going and southern style to it and then it moves into the orchestra and you're like oh there i can see that's john williams you you you're familiar you get that john williams familiarity and so of course this that movie came out in 69 right about the same time that Steven Spielberg is becoming a director of TV shows, having to write scripts, waiting for his big break, which is going to be Sugarland Express. And what he does, because he's the son of a musician, is he goes and buys soundtracks and listens to them while he writes his scripts. And I identify with this. I've done this exact same thing many, many times. You just listen, you'll listen to classical music or you listen to soundtracks and it inspires you to, to make a story out of it. And so that's what he's doing. And so he's at the album store, he's flipping through the albums and he sees this album for a soundtrack from the Reavers takes it home, listening to it, writing a script, writes a wonderful script and thinks to himself, man, this guy is good. If I ever get a chance to, to direct a feature film, I want this guy to be the guy that composes the soundtrack. Nice. And so just as it happened a few years later, he gets the opportunity at a Sugarland Express and he says, I want John Williams. And so John Williams, who at this point, he's, he's in his early 40s. Now, he's been the young guy most of his life, right? He has been, the directors have all been older than he is, and he's been the, the young guy who's, who's learning the ropes. But then with Spielberg, I mean, Spielberg's in his early 20s. He's a young, young man, right? And, he's, and, and John Williams says he looked like he was 18 when I went to go talk to him. And he says, but just within the first five minutes of talking to him, I realized that Spielberg knew more about soundtracks of history than I did. 
which is a that's a that's a big statement for John Williams. Yeah, really. And so he's like, I just I'm, I'm thinking this kid's going to be listening to rock and roll music, but apparently he rebelled against his parents who played classical music by listening to soundtracks and not listening to Led Zeppelin or whatever. <laughs> and so they do the Sugarland Express and he still has that same style. He still has you've got this kind of folky guitar. It's very similar to the Reavers and then it moves into the something that you can say, yeah, I feel I feel John Williams in this. I've got the orchestra, I've got the same orchestration going on. I feel it. But Jaws is different. John Williams talks about this. He says there's a point in his life where he loses somebody very important to him. And it was his wife, Barbara. When he was a young man, younger than we are right now, early 40s, uh, Barbara suddenly had a brain aneurysm, died suddenly, and John was left as the father of three teenage children. But he says that point in his life, it, w- it was almost like a gift where he realized how he needed to do things. And... I can say with certainty, if you listen to his soundtracks before Jaws and then listen to Jaws, you can hear a difference. And he lost his wife in March of 1974, and he wrote the soundtrack for Jaws in March of 1975. Dang. Let's let's talk about his meeting with Spielberg, okay? Okay. So Spielberg is working on the movie, and... He meets with John Williams and says, all right, let's 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 hear what you got. And John Williams goes through the piano and says, all right, here's what I think the soundtrack for Jaws is going to be. Ready? dun dun Spielberg's like, that's good. That's really good. Uh, no, seriously. What? He's like, no, seriously, that's it. Two notes become the most recognizable soundtrack of all time. And it's perfect. It is perfect because it's frightening. It's frightening. And with two notes, he he is able to give you not only here's the shark, but here's how far the shark is away from you. Oh, it's so good how he how he manipulates the audience with this this theme. Right. If it's da-dum, da-dum, that's too that's far away. You got a long space and poop. He's around, but he's not but, close. If it's dum 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 dum, you're about to get your legs bitten off. That's right. Right. So I, I I listened to this and thought about it carefully. When he was still a young man, he worked under a composer named Bernard Herrmann, who you may not know, but that's the composer of Psycho. Yeah, I do know that. And so I look back and I listen to specifically the shower scene. Yes. So I listen to the shower scene. Ree, and it, ree, ree, ree. Right. It is almost the reverse of Jaws. And I can, we'll play both of them for you here. And you can kind of hear how, how it's the reverse. Psycho yeah, starts with a and then it goes it's the reverse it is the reverse of Jaws which is it's incredible Psycho goes dun 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 instead of dun dun so yeah okay yeah 
And just for the for the musicians out there, he does a fantastic John Williams does a fantastic thing with the other part of the melody in this where um, you've got the dum 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 dum, and then you go da da da. You know, you've got this other part to it, but whereas the underlying part is in E, the higher pitch melodic part is in E flat, which means they're right next to each other on the keyboard. Most notes, you've got spaces between the notes for them to sound good. When you play notes that are a half step apart, they don't sound right together. They don't go together. And that creates the discomfort that you feel whenever you hear those notes that don't belong together. He's playing notes that don't belong together and it makes you on edge. It puts you at the edge of your seat in fear of whatever it is that's going on. Brilliant. Well, let's talk about what he did for Jurassic Park. All right. So Jurassic Park, you have dinosaurs eating people, right? Yes. Scary scenes. Yes. But whereas with Jaws, you have tension and fear. John Williams does something completely different with Jurassic Park. With Jurassic Park, you have awe and reverence. It is like you are walking into a cathedral. Yeah, it is. It's fascination and wonder and amazement and beauty rather than the mindless eating machine that the shark is. Right. Because Steven Spielberg didn't want this to be a horror movie, right? He wanted to... He wanted to approach it from the perception of a little kid. And little kids aren't scared of dinosaurs. They're in awe of dinosaurs. And so that was the idea that he conveyed to Williams. And that's why Williams composed a score that was majestic and awe-inspiring as opposed to having this discontinent sound of notes that don't belong together that puts you in fear and tension. The scene in Jurassic Park when John Hammond brings Dr. Grant and Dr. Sadler and they see the brachiosaur eating from the trees and the swell of the music and Dr. Grant like is about to faint and John Hammond is like, Dr. Grant, my dear Dr. Sadler, welcome to Jurassic Park. That scene I've seen a thousand times and when that goes with what I'm seeing on the screen and the emotion of the music, it, it it's emotional. I mean, I, I get choked up sometimes when I watch it. It's amazing. Yeah. It's incredible. So I want to go back just real quick because there is this moment in Jaws. You, you've got all of this tension music that gives you fear and trepidation, but there's this moment when the chase is on, right? Did, did you listen? Did, I, did you get a I chance did, to yeah. listen? Yep. And suddenly in the midst of all of this scary intense music suddenly it turns into a swashbuckling adventure it's amazing because every time i see it it just the whole mood of the movie changes in a moment and steven spielberg said this he said that Jaws would only have been half as successful as it was without John Williams. And so you look at this and you go, wow, if if I don't hear the shark, I don't know what's going on. 
The shark is invisible because, as we noted, there were production problems which made them make decisions about this. But even though you can't see it, you hear it, right? Right. That's right. You fear it. You have you understand how near or far away it is. And then in just a moment, he switches. He switches gears on you. And suddenly, you're no longer following the shark. You're following the three adventurers on their quest to conquer the shark. And you think to yourself, we're going to win. We're going to win. This is this is the this is where the sailors win. They take over. They win, and it's this wonderful, exciting, exhilarating music. Which then, when it twists again and everything goes badly, makes it that much more effective. When John Williams won the best score for Jaws, he was conducting the orchestra at the Academy Awards, <laughs> and when they announced his name, he had to leave the orchestra run up there, accept his award, and then hustle back to continue directing the orchestra. Here's a couple of tidbits I want to throw at you about Jurassic Park that I thought were pretty cool, right? Um, one of the things that uh, Steven Spielberg takes a sort of creative license on is the height of the Velociraptors. Velociraptors are kind of known archaeologically to be only about six feet tall, right? Six foot turkey-ish. Right. But he makes them 10 feet tall. Uh-huh. And he, he just decides they're going to be scarier that way. Well, during filming, paleontologists uncovered a 10-foot-tall specimen of raptor called the Utah raptors. Pretty cool. They were super excited when they discovered that while they were filming. That's awesome. I'm going to throw in a tidbit between your tidbits here. Okay. Because it also involves a discovery. Three years ago, on August 19th, 2017, 42 years after the movie Jaws brought the story of the USS Indianapolis to the world at large, a co-founder of Microsoft named Paul Allen located the wreck of the USS Indianapolis in the Philippine Sea at a depth of over 18,000 feet. That is awesome. Love that. couple of tidbits for you at Jurassic Park. When Dennis Nedry is first introduced... He is watching Jaws on his computer screen. Nuh-uh. Yes. How did I miss that? He is watching freaking Jaws. What? Yes. Crap. Now I got to go look at it again. (laughs) Did Did we already talk about his clothes and his wardrobe change? No, let's talk about that. Okay. So, so Dennis Nedry, Wayne Knight has several different uh, outfits that he wears during the course of this movie. One of them is a Hawaiian shirt. The other one is like a members-only jacket. A gray jacket. As it turns out. And a yellow raincoat. Yes, the yellow raincoat, right. This is what the kids, each one of the kids, Sean Astin, Corey Feldman, and... And Chunk. Jeff Cohen. That is the costumes that they are wearing in the movie Goonies. Oh, that's incredible, man. The yellow raincoat is what Mikey is wearing. The Hawaiian shirt is what Chunk is wearing when he does the truffle shuffle. And the members <laughs> only jacket is what Corey Feldman is wearing over his purple rain shirt in the Goonies. Really Purple cool. rain. Purple rain. Okay. A okay. couple more tidbits. Okay. If you go back and watch the movie when the Dilophosaurus is spitting venom at Dennis Nedry, okay? Yeah. The first shot that he spits, he goes, and it hits him kind of in the chest. 
he actually, if you watch closely, the actor Wayne Knight has a big blob of it in his hand, and he takes it and wipes it on his chest to sort of help the uh, help the effect a little bit. Uh-huh. Kind of a blooper that you can see. He goes from having a little bit on his chest to having a whole lot because he just took a big scoop of it and rubbed it on himself from his hand. <laughs> and then finally, one of the things that a lot of uh, people were kind of interested in, and it's never really covered, it's kind of mentioned and then dropped, is is what's wrong with the Triceratops? Why is the Triceratops sick? And it's this sort of mini mystery in the middle of the movie. By the way, the big gigantic pile of Triceratops dung that she's digging through to to ch- check for lilac berries. Yes. Made of clay and straw, and they poured honey on it to draw flies. So it really wasn't that uh-huh. smelly. It wasn't really that big of a deal. But when Lauren Dern's character is sifting through the poop looking for lilac berries, she doesn't find any. But the answer to the mystery is the scene that was kind of cut out was that the Triceratops would swallow stones to help grind up um, for digestive purposes. And it had thrown up the stones after they had rounded out and were no longer of use. And that's where the lilac berries were. And that's what was making the Triceratops sick. All right, let's talk about the reception of these movies. Okay. So we've mentioned before that Jaws was the first blockbuster, right? And blockbuster is a word that existed since World War II. It's actually where it came out. They would drop bombs during the Blitz, which our friend John Hammond, you know, the actor Richard Attenborough, Richard Attenborough lived through. <laughs> drop bombs that would take out a whole block. They would call those blockbusters. And so that it, there was a little bit of an idea that you know, hey, a movie can you know have a big impact. That's what the blockbuster came from. But it wasn't until 1975 that the word became associated with movies that were major hits during the summer. Because in 19 before 1975, summer was considered a dead period for movies. People were on vacation. They weren't going, they weren't in school. They were doing other things. And so people did not go and watch movies during the summer until 1975. And uh, you mentioned to me, this movie was originally supposed to be released in December that's right. But because of that, because of going long on the production, it didn't get released until midsummer, June of 1975. But what happened? Yeah. So the release date was pushed back to the summer of 1975 in May. And keep in mind, at this point, Steven Spielberg and his crew are still wondering if audiences are going to accept a giant rubber shark as the threat. They may not, they didn't know how the public at large was going to feel about this, but they had done some screenings. And there is a point in the movie, Steven Spielberg is watching one of the original screenings that they do for the test audiences. So there's this scene where Alex Kittner is getting eaten by the shark and the blood literally shoots up out of the water. You know, they had to, it was, it was... It was an amazingly grotesque scene, given that this is a little kid. And so at this point in the pre-screening, someone jumps out of their chair and runs out of the theater. And Steven Spielberg thinks, oh no, I went too far. 
and he watches this guy and he goes out of the theater and he sees him throw up in the trash can. <laughs> he sees him vomit into the trash can. He's like, oh God, I've made it too bad. It's not going to work. Oh no, what's going to happen? And then the guy, after he gets done throwing up, turns around and goes back in and watches the rest of the movie. That's and awesome. he's like, holy cow, this might work. Yes, yeah. You know, it was tested in Dallas because it was far from the ocean. <laughs> he wanted to know if an, a shark was scary to people who are landlocked. And the answer was, yep. Yes, it is, Pat. Yes, it is. People were scared to go swimming in swimming pools after this movie came out. <laughs> <laughs> this was the first movie to gross over $100 million at the box office. That was a, 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 something that nobody had ever achieved before. So another thing that had never, that did not happen before this was a mass release all on the same day. So they took an entirely different tack with this movie. When they, when they saw their final product, when they saw what, how test audiences reacted, they thought, wow, we may actually have a real hit on our hands. And so they did an, a marketing campaign where they had all of the actors come and do all of these TV spots promoting the movie. And it's it's incredible because if you watch some of the stuff that Richard Dreyfuss did, he's not, he's not complimentary. He's like, if this movie fails, it's not Steven Spielberg's fault. It's the, it's the production company's fault. I mean, he, he doesn't look favorably upon it. He, uh, he is actually defending the movie before the release like he's like i, I know people are gonna hate it and the, the, you know it's just not and it's not spielberg's fault that this movie is gonna fail right but they do these promotions the other not everybody else is as uh critical as richard dreyfus is they're doing their promotion and then they do something unprecedented they release it in over 400 theaters all on the same day now, people listening to this are, are going to be like, why is that unprecedented? That right. happens all the time. Yeah, it didn't before this time. It used to be that the, that a movie would come out in a few theaters and then a few more, and it was something that was a trickle-out effect. But with Jaws, they said, we want it to all hit all at the same time so that everyone is talking about it at once. And it changed, forgive me for saying this again, it changed the paradigm. It was a shift. And from that moment on, every major motion picture would have a gigantic release. I mean, a standard for today is 2,500 theaters on release day. Yep. The marketing campaign was genius on this deal too. It included shark-related messages. Like, if you happen to see a great white, here's how you deal with it. This is part of the marketing <laughs> campaign. Right? That's awesome. There was yeah. a great white shark on the cover of Time magazine. And it also created a boom in tourism at Martha's Vineyard. Which oh, is yeah. It's great. And at the time that they filmed this, the population of Martha's Vineyard was 5,000 people. Within just a few years, it had increased to 15,000 people. So let's talk about the reception in Jurassic Park. Okay. So Jurassic Park was released June 11th, 1993. The studio's biggest concern and competition in the summer of 93 was The Last Action Hero, which also happens to be the last movie that I walked out of because it sucks so much. <laughs> 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 
That's interesting. The first movie I walked out of was Jaws 3. The last movie that you walked out of was Last Action Hero. (laughs) (laughs) The movie and book generated so much interest in dinosaurs and paleontology that universities had a record increase in students. I'm sorry. I get ahead of myself. Jurassic Park was released on Friday, June 11, 1993, and it broke box office records its first weekend with $47 million on the first weekend. First weekend. Yes. It eventually went to make more than $900 million worldwide. Compare that to what we just discussed with Jaws, $100 million, right? $900 million. David Kep, who is a screenwriter, remembers the day it opened. I was in New York, and I walked to the theater that he was watching, and the guy comes out and announces to the giant line, ladies and gentlemen, the 7 o'clock show of Jurassic Park is sold out. And people go, oh. And he goes, also, the 10 o'clock show is sold out. And they went, oh. Also, Saturday night, 7 and 10 o'clock show are sold out. And David Kep's like, I'm not an expert, but that seems like it's doing pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a good sign. This movie was very well received. It made tons of money. I thought this was interesting. Spielberg received $250 million from the movie gross and profit participations, which is the largest sum ever for a director. Can I just say something about Steven Spielberg and, and the fish, finishing up of this movie? We talked about the soundtrack and, and, and what happens with it. But Spielberg at this time, I mean, while while Jurassic Park is being finalized, before it has the soundtrack finished, he's already filming Schindler's List. It's astounding that he's doing both of these movies almost at the same time. I mean, he's finishing one as he's in the midst of directing the other. But what would happen is he would be directing in Poland. He would have the weekends off. On the weekends, he would fly to Paris. Someone from the U.S. would take tapes of what John Williams had been composing for Jurassic Park, fly them over to Paris. They would sit and listen to the tapes and watch the film at the same time. Steven Spielberg would give his notes. The guy would fly back, give them to John Williams. Steven Spielberg would fly over to watch, to continue directing Schindler's List. And then he, within the span of two years, he makes two of his biggest movies of all time as they overlap. It's astounding. It is. It really is. Laura Dern, when she saw the dinosaur CGI on screen for the first time, she cried. People don't appreciate it now because it's so commonplace. But at that time, when... When you looked on the screen and you saw a freaking dinosaur, it was like nothing you'd ever seen. Like, we were used to giant rubber sharks. Holy shit, How did they do that? That's right. All right. So let's get it. Final judgment. D. Okay. Where are you? All right. These are two iconic movies. Yes. They change the paradigm in different ways, nearly 20 years apart from each other. Okay. We've talked about for two and a half episodes, we've talked about what they did. Looking back, I just have to say to myself, okay, I'm just going to look and watch these two movies. As I look and watch these two movies, now it's been 45 years since Jaws came out. It has been 27 years since Jurassic Park came out. They're both old movies at this point. And so I just looked and I said, okay, what problems do I have? And how have these movies aged over time, right? Okay. 
I look at Jaws and it's impressive. As the mechanical shark comes out of the water and onto the boat, I'm not thinking to myself, oh, there's the mechanical shark coming out of the water. I'm thinking, holy crap, that guy is gonna eat one of those guys. And sure enough, that's what happens. As I see the shark's jaws chomp down on Quint and him screaming for mercy, I am I am not thinking about the production of this movie it's great scene. at all. Great scene. It is a movie that despite the fact that it is 45 years old in in its technology, I am not distracted. Jurassic Park. I loved it when it came out. When I watched it and I saw the dinosaur for the first time, I was just like everybody else and like, holy crap, how did they do that? That is astounding. It changed the way that movies were made. Looking at back at it 27 years later, it's still amazing. But there are features that I kind of go, eh, that didn't age as well as I had hoped it would. And it's not just me. I watched this with my children, and the first scene that was so amazing back in 1993 of the Brachiosaurus, when you see it for the first time, my kids went, that doesn't look real. And I kind of went, eh, guys, I mean, remember, this was, this was the first time that this had ever been done, but it hasn't aged as well. Then I look at the first scene with Dr. Grant and the kid, and I'm going, why is this kid here? And why is Dr. Grant so mean to him? And then I'm looking at the, the scene where the, the, tr- the car is falling through the tree as they're trying to escape and uh, trying to escape. And I'm thinking, why don't they just go to the other side of the tree? And so as amazing as Jurassic Park is, there are problems with it in my, from my perspective. And I can't say that it is as timeless as Jaws is. And so that is why I say Jaws wins the contest between Jurassic Park and Jaws. Okay. You're way off base. (laughs) (laughs) Here's what we're looking at here. All right. Yes. These movies are old. Yes. When you look at them from 2020, there are things that are not as favorable. I mean, the shark that we only see for about 20 seconds of Jaws would have a lot more problems if we got a good look at it. These two movies are amusement park rides. Think of the greatest roller coaster. Like I'm thinking the Titan at Six Flags Over Texas. Okay. That's Jaws. Super high, super straight drop, exciting thrill ride. Still fun today, no matter what. Jurassic Park is like that same ride, except you have 10 loop-de-loops. So it takes something that's awesome and it makes it even more awesome. Okay. Now, do you have Jurassic Park without Jaws? Probably not. Jaws is the granddaddy of Jurassic Park and it owes a lot to Jaws. But I do think it steps up. Instead of having one threat, you've got two raptors and a T-Rex instead of one shark. You also have a poison spitting Dilophosaurus running around. So you have more things to be scared of. I do think the water element makes it more scary. But I know when I watch these two, the more entertaining movie for me is Jurassic Park. Do I love them both? Absolutely. Do we owe a lot to what they've contributed to the movie culture? Absolutely. Jaws changed everything. But 
from my perspective, the most entertaining of these two movies is Jurassic Park. Okay, I'm going to give a quick rebuttal argument. <laughs> okay. Because there's there's an idea that that I, I I wanted to touch on, and I'll just as as kudos to Jurassic Park, the same kids who were like, yeah, that doesn't look real when it when it came to the Velociraptors chasing the children through the kitchen or the T Rex like attacking people in the the Land Rovers, they were burying their head in my shoulder and saying tell me when it's over right i mean they 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 may have been unimpressed initially but with jurassic park from t T t-rex moment on except for that car falling scene um it is it, it is intense and frightening but i talked in our very first episode on this on these two movies about how the criticism of sugarland express was even though they had these fantastic car chase scenes there wasn't any character development in jurassic park i feel like he he falls back into that same trap i i think that the character development is minimal it's there it's there there's something there but you do not from my perspective, emotionally connect with Dr. Grant Sattler, maybe, no, not even Ian Malcolm. You don't really have the connection with them that you do with the characters in Jaws. And we talked about how the movie was about the shark and the movie was about the dinosaurs, so they weren't as much worried about the actors. But I just think that Jaws brings a higher caliber of actor and especially that scene that we talked about earlier today, the USS Indianapolis, the drunk talk, the comparing of scars, I can see why that moment changed everyone's perception about this movie because it was that moment that you made a heart-to-heart connection with all of the characters. The holy trinity that was fighting against the demonic shark, you made that connection at that moment. and. I just never had that moment in Jurassic Park. No, you're exactly right. I will not argue. I don't really care about the characters in Jurassic Park. The one character that I do care about, the biggest emotional impact for me, character-wise, is when the Raptors are fighting the T-Rex. I want the T-Rex to win. Yeah. Everybody else, I'm just like, oh, who's going to get it next? I don't really care. Right. Lex, the hacker? Eh. So, so you felt when you watched Jurassic Park, you felt the same way Steven Spielberg did when he read the book of the of Jaws. At the end, you wanted the shark to win. You yeah. wanted the T Rex to win. I want the T Rex to win. So they did that. I mean, at least for that, you can say they did that perfectly because the T Rex wins and the people still survive. Right. Yeah. That's good. well. We sure want to hear from you guys. Are we way off base? D took Jaws. I'm taking Jurassic Park. Where are you? Hit us up on Facebook. Hit us up on Twitter. Email us. You might even get a shout out on the next podcast. We'll see you guys next week.